This is the Urban Political, the podcast on urban theory, research, and activism. It is May 15, and in this episode, we are going to talk about the urban politics of the Corona pandemic. After our first interview on March 12, we have invited our guests again, Creighton Connolly. An urban geographer and political ecologist, senior lecturer at the University of Lincoln, UK, Harris Ali, a sociologist and professor at York University in Toronto, and Roger Kyle, an urban researcher and professor at the Faculty of Environmental Studies at York University in Toronto. So, all of you, thank you for joining us. Thanks for taking your time again. My name is Markus Kipp, and I'm here with my colleague Ross Beveridge. Just to recapitulate um, what we have talked in, about in our last conversation,、uh, we learned from you about the role of interdisciplinary urban research for our understanding of the coronavirus outbreak. You pointed out lessons that some cities like Toronto, Singapore, and others have learned from the SARS epidemic in 2003, and how their implementation has affected today's preparedness. We also spoke about the racist framing of both the SARS and the coronavirus, and the scapegoating of Asian populations for the outbreak. We also considered the role of the urban scale within the global architecture. Of public health responses and the dominant role of the nation-state in structuring and、um, deciding on the approach. And last but not least, you also highlighted several aspects and instances of solidarity responses emerging at local community level. Yes, I mean, as as Mark has said, is、um, a lot has happened、uh, since our last con-、uh, conversation in March.、Um, This seems like a good time to 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 come back to you guys、uh, to get us started.、Um, perhaps we could talk about your recently published journal article in、uh, Urban Studies, in which you link、uh, extended urbanisation, the concept of extended urbanisation,、uh, with spatialities of emerging infectious、uh, disease.、Um, could you talk us through the main arguments of, of the paper? Sure. So this paper、uh, starts with the premise that the expansion of cities along the urban periphery or the urban edge、uh, can actually lead to new forms of infectious、uh, disease, emerging infectious disease outbreaks, and particularly、uh, zoonoses. So、um, diseases that cross the species barrier from animals into humans, which We know has been the case with、uh, the coronaviruses like SARS and MERS, and、uh, now this、uh, new one. And、uh, this differs from previous research that has looked at both relationships between suburbanization and chronic disease,、uh, which had primarily been、uh, the focus, with less on、uh, infectious disease. As well as research on urbanization and disease in general, and including the research that、uh, Roger and Harris had done on SARS over the past fifteen、uh, years or so. And、uh, one thing that we noted is that、uh, this potential vulnerability or emergence of infectious disease along the urban edge is related to. 
uh, changing social ecologies uh, on uh, at the periphery of cities. And this has to do with the expansion of cities into uh, formerly unurbanized areas, as uh, I think Harris ta had talked about a bit in our uh, last discussion. So uh, in addition to that, we highlight three areas uh, that we think that we need to pay attention to uh, in future research for um, for addressing this relationship between urbanization and infectious disease. And this is based on uh, extensive literature uh, review on uh, these topics. So one is demographic change and mobility. So we're finding that uh, we have large population increases on uh, the urban edge uh, through migration, rural to urban migration, particularly in the global south. And a lot of times you don't have, uh, the infrastructure doesn't necessarily keep pace with this growth of populations on the urban edge. Um, and sometimes you have higher densities there as well, which can be uh, problematic in, uh, if there's a lack of sufficient infrastructure. Um, so that brings me on to the next one, which is infrastructure and looking at the different ways in which uh, transportation networks, um, manufacturing, uh, transnational manufacturing networks, for example, can uh, lead to uh, infectious disease outbreaks. Um, and the third one being governance issues. Uh, so you have sort of complex uh, governance uh, relationships uh, in terms of responding to infectious disease outbreaks and, and uh, preventing against uh, possible outbreaks. And this uh, often involves uh, municipalities, uh, regional governments like um, provincial, state, county governments, and ob obviously the national government as well uh, that has to be done in collaboration with health bodies. And I think we talked about this a little bit last time as well. Um, but that's essentially uh, the overview of the paper. And we, we talk about how we can use um, a spatialized or landscape political ecology approach to uh, investigate these uh, issues because of this, uh, you know, the political highlighting of the political uh, nature of disease outbreaks, um, as well as this uh, spatialized aspect and the relationships between uh, human and non-human natures and so on. Um, so if uh, Roger or Harris has anything uh, to add, I'll allow them to do so. I could just add that you make it sound like such a great paper. I want to read it myself. Uh, that's great. Um, <clears throat> I <laughs> hope, I assume you also contributed to the paper, Roger, didn't you? <laughs> Yes, of course, I contributed it, but it's good after, you know, this paper has had a long history. And you once it's out, it, you know, it becomes a different entity altogether. It has its own life. So uh, my uh, attempted joke was about uh, basically the death of the author, um, the idea that the paper now has a, a, a life of its own uh, that stands there now in, in, uh, on some journals' website, in Urban Studies' website. And, uh, you know, stares me in the face because I now need to live with the consequences of where uh, this paper, um, uh, with the afterlife of the paper. And here we have an actual in-life uh, in experiment of the fact that a paper is published right at the time when there seems to be an audience for it. And we, as the writers uh, of the paper, the authors of the paper, perhaps, 
need to go back to it also and think about what it is that we have started here and what are the points that need to be taken forward in the conversation. Going to one of the aspects of the paper, um, the last one you mentioned, uh, Creighton, governance. Could you give us uh, an overview of the spectrum of different political responses to the COVID threat from Stockholm to Singapore? Um, and what do you find remarkable about the differences or maybe even the similarities that you observe? So um, I think there have, there have been a sort of three types of responses, I suppose you could say is uh, one, you have, Uh, governments that decided not to take a strong uh, a approach uh, to, you know, imposing restrictions on uh, movement. For example, uh, early on in the disease, perhaps there wasn't the recognition of how serious it was. Uh, and then you have countries that uh, acted very quickly right away. And then you have kind of a in-between approach. So last time we talked about how Singapore was one of those cases that actually um, took a very proactive approach at um, contact tracing and isolating and quarantining people. Um, and this was quite effective for a while until uh, last month when they had a big outbreak of uh, coronavirus within their uh, migrant worker dormitories, which are all located around the peripheries of the city, uh, where people live in very dense quarters of about um, you know, 12 to 20 people per room. Um, so once this outbreak emerged, this was very much a blind spot for the government there. Um, you know, it wasn't, uh, certainly wasn't anticipated, although in hindsight, people have argued they, they should have seen this coming, but, um, uh, all of these workers, which are about 300,000 in total had restrictions on the movements within their complexes. So a lot of them ended up feeling like, uh, they were actually, Uh, in jail, and this sort of highlights the uh, inequalities that that you see um, this disease highlighting. In that, um, you know, you have two Singapores here, really one uh, for the citizens and uh, long-term residents, expatriates, and so on, and then one for the low-wage uh, migrant workers. So, um, moving on to uh, Hong Kong, I think is another interesting example where actually the government didn't take a a very firm response to uh, the disease. Initially, uh, the border with China wasn't closed until at least the middle of February, um, when the uh, outbreak there was quite advanced. Um, there was lack of uh, personal protection equipment as well. Uh, and there wasn't very, um, you know, there was no emphasis on using masks. But what happened here where... Um, you had these organizational uh, infrastructures set up from the protests where uh, the protest groups actually um, took matters into their own hands and distributed masks to elderly people and uh, installed um, hand sanitizers around uh, the city, but particularly in tenement blocks where uh, you have high densities of um, low-income people. And uh, one of the reasons for this is the, uh, the memory of SARS that was really Uh, embedded in people's minds because Hong Kong had one of the most serious uh, outbreaks of SARS um, back in 2003. Uh, so I think this was a really interesting example of a, a grassroots uh, response uh, where the 
um, people were quite crit critical of their government's uh, response and took uh, things into their own hand. And this relates somewhat to uh, Sweden's approach as well, which, um, you know, has also managed to largely avoid um, tough restrictions and closing down restaurants and bars and so on. Um, and uh, this has been based uh, largely on, on trusting people to uh, act responsibly themselves and uh, has largely uh, worked. I mean, there have been bans, of course, on sporting events and large groups of people and uh, so on. Uh, but also there the response has been led um, by politicians rather than, or sorry, by scientists rather than politicians, uh, which has uh, been quite an effective strategy, which I think perhaps Roger can talk about a little bit more in the, uh, the case of Germany. I, I can just add that the, you know, the, there has been a debate, of course, this about the relationship of science to politics <clears throat> all over the world. And the question is who drives what and what part of the debate um, makes the decisions. Um, the, the, there is generally, I believe, uh, two mega camps have, um, have emerged. One is uh, a hyper-scientization of, um, of, of politics, which means that uh, science speaks. Uh, the premier of the province of Ontario um, who has not been known for being the most uh, intellectual leader in the past, has now become a believer in science and speaks about the science, driving things, and we will not open the economy of the province uh, before the science tells him what to do. So there's this belief that science now regulates the way uh, we conduct ourselves. But the opposite, of course, is also there. There has been, this has been a high time of populist uh, fear-mongering and conspiracy theorists. COVID-idiots are everywhere. And there is uh, an attempt to derail any attempt at rational governing um, in, in any sense of the word. So I think we have both. And in each society, those types of um, reactions are currently being fought over and it's not entirely clear um, how they're going to be decided or whether they ever are going to be decided. It clearly has given much more attention to both of those extremes, uh, the science and the conspiracy, um, and any manner of uh, interpretations in between. It is kind of ironic that Google Sidewalk Labs decamps out of Toronto just at the time when everybody talks about data and security and public health knowledge. Um, it, it is interesting, perhaps this is just a real estate deal gone bad, but uh, perhaps the securitization and surveillance agenda continues uh, as it always has. It is a matter of mostly disciplining the poor, and this has always been the main agenda of those kinds of things that we now have to watch out for. We need to ask who's driving this agenda of data-driven smart city kind of development that is going to be with us now uh, after the pandemic as it was before. Who has control over the data? Are there long-term controls? And those kinds of things mean quite different things to different people. Again, you know, they have a different uh, impact uh, on different populations. That is true, again, for those segregated neighborhoods in North America, uh, but also to the banlieue in France or places like Sossenheim and Bonamés in, in my hometown of Frankfurt, which, you know, where racialization 
is certainly part of the security regime and part of the way in which now uh, data of all kinds and uh, you know smart city development will be uh, meted out to different people in different ways. And so maybe to conclude that particular observation, I want to quote uh, Brandy Summers, who has written in the New York Times that black folks have been educated in a kind of quarantine since day one. For a lot of us white folks, quarantine was the first time in their lives. The kind of sequestration that we have experienced is the first time in our lifetime, uh, particularly if you're a middle-class person like myself. But for many other people in the world, this has always been part of city life. And this is something that we need to keep in mind as we, quote unquote, normalize city life. Just thinking more detail about um, the the spectrum of responses, uh, one of the key themes which has been cropping up um, has been density, of course. And uh, we've talked about that um, on the podcast another time, a number of times, not least with Colin McFarlane. How could we um, uh, characterize the debate around density and the different ways in which it's being presented and used in uh, different contexts? I listened to uh, most of your uh, interview with Colin McFarlane uh, with with a lot of interest, so um, try not to repeat too much uh, of what you talked about then. Um, But I think you know, as you as you mentioned, uh, or as Colin mentioned, uh, density has been accused for um, the severity of, of outbreaks uh, in places like New York City, but also you have cities like Hong Kong, Seoul, and Taipei that are far denser, but also have fewer cases per capita. And so this is one reason uh, why we've been suggesting that governance um, is can actually be a more important factor than than density in determining the severity of outbreaks. Um, you also have um, social and cultural factors like people in Asian cities tend to be more likely to wear masks in public than in the West, um, which can be a big preventative factor. Um, but this is also, I think, creating a space for urban designers to uh, think about how we might uh, shift the design of cities um, and, and density in the future to uh sort of prevent or, or mitigate the severity of infectious disease outbreaks. So, uh, for example, Lloyd Elter, who's an um, uh, architect based in uh, Toronto, argues about this um, Goldilocks density, where you have a density that is high enough, but not so high that people are living in 30-story apartment blocks and relying on extensive use of elevators and other sorts of um, public spaces. Uh, and also need to plan cities better to support um, bicycle and pedestrian infrastructure. And this is something that I'm hearing quite a lot um, so that people can get around with uh, without relying on crowded public transit, like subways if needed, which um, Roger had referred me to a, a study that noted how the subway system in New York was actually a primary um, transmission mechanism for uh, the disease in the city, as well as um, bus uh, hubs and transit hubs on the uh, outskirts of the city. Um, and uh, given the uh, population and housing density of many informal settlements, uh, there are also many opportunities for social mixing and limited options for physical and social distancing. So there's a global north-south uh, difference uh, here as well. Um, and uh, yeah, so I think that's... Uh, 
my main observations on that, unless Roger or Harris have anything else to add. Yeah, let me just add a couple of things. I mean, uh, like Creighton, I, you know, I, I'm very impressed with um, the the previous um, podcast you did uh, with Colin McFarlane, which uh, covered a lot of the points that needed to be made. Uh, is in every city we have now advocates uh, of, of all kind that are urban uh, intellectuals and city builders like uh, my friend and colleague Jay Peter here in Toronto, who has written a wonderful piece uh, in Azure magazine, uh, which points out the dividing lines here in Toronto, uh, specifically with a particular landscape that we have in Toronto, which is a city um, <clears throat> with 50% uh, of people living in basically high-rise apartments also, uh, and about 50% living in single-family homes, give or take, uh, that in this city, of course, density means different things to different people, and we need to um, think about that all the time. Uh, uh, density isn't a problem in itself when it comes to infectious disease. It can actually be an advantage when it comes to fighting these outbreaks, like like everything we know from the debate about contact cities, compact cities more generally, the bundling of infrastructures and services can be quite a positive way to organize our lives. The problem with this entire debate on density has been, uh, at least in cities like the one I live in here in, in North America, in Toronto, has been that many of those who have advocated higher density and compactness have proven to be condoning gentrification in mostly white and mostly upwardly mobile inner city um, neighborhoods. Um, and though the same advocates have often shown little regard for the inner suburban um, massive housing areas that we have in many areas. Now we have a lot of those here in Toronto where there's overcrowding, uh, bad physical maintenance, transit and food deserts, lack of park space and so on. Uh, automobile dependency happens in those kinds of neighborhoods. So talking about bicycle paths uh, in dense inner cities is one thing, but talking about that in one of those uh, massive uh, suburban uh, tower neighborhoods is quite a different thing. So their density can be turned into something really dangerous and debilitating uh, in for these poorer and more peripheral parts of town. And I think that's something we need to keep in mind uh, as we speak about density. Density is not one thing. It is different things to different people. Yeah, if I could just add one more thing uh, to this discussion is that I think both Roger and Grayton have highlighted this idea about the relationship between density and inequality. And I think that's one of the things that the pandemic has really opened up uh, and allowed urban studies researchers to look into this relationship in, in more details. And I'll give just a, a couple more examples to illustrate uh, just uh, what Roger and uh, Grayton have I've just discussed. And one of the things is um, about, you know, high rise buildings, uh, condos and, and the living there. You know, one critic uh, once made the observation that this pandemic is in a way uh, a middle class quarantine phenomenon. You know, because many of the people who live in these high-rise buildings uh, in Toronto, they're the very ones who can afford to uh, do work remotely and stay at home. 
right? They're not the ones who have to go out and, and conduct the essential services, right? So there's an inequality there. Another inequality you can see in terms of controversies going on in Ontario now about cottage countries, you know, that uh, you have wealthy cottagers who may live in, in downtown and other areas um, going up to the cottage areas where it's less dense, and the people who live in the cottage areas year-round saying, hey, we don't have the health infrastructure to accommodate an influx of people, right? So again, this illustrates a sort of inequality related to density. Yes, so um, let's dwell on that point of inequality for a bit longer. Um, as we have seen over the past weeks, the pandemic lays bare uh, many of these inequalities um, in different societies, uh, exacerbating some, producing new ones, and acknowledging the difficulty of speaking about race and gender in a, in a cross-cultural uh, context. What are your observations uh, or what is your analysis in terms of how race and gender or other social divisions play out in the pandemic? Yeah, I mean, one of the things I think that we have to bear in mind, uh, if you look back at the history of pandemics, is that there has always been this sort of scapegoating of people, um, because the infectious disease is always sort of perceived to be coming from somewhere external, right? So there's always an othering process in, involved, and, and you see this throughout uh, history uh, in the various parts of, of the world. So even today, we see a different manifestation of that, the scapegoating and xenophobia. So in a sense, it's not so surprising that this has come out once again, right? Because it, it almost always has. One of the differences, though, from the past is the role of the social media to spread xenophobic uh, sentiments uh, And, and that, I think, has played a much greater role in inflaming uh, the sort of racist um, sort of sentiments than in the past. I can say a couple of things. Um, one is, uh, you know, having lived half of my life in Germany and having lived the other half in Canada, I realized that uh, intuitively and in the way the state organizes itself, the, the recognition of inequality is quite different. Uh, you know, in in North America, as opposed to much of Europe, uh, people don't think in racial terms or even in ethnic terms. Uh, the state uh, doesn't necessarily have good data on racial inequalities in many parts of Europe. Even there's even a divide between the United States and Canada in this respect. A lot of um, activists had to point out that as the intuitively in the communities people notice that the victims in uh, of this particular pandemic tended to be uh, in non-white communities in poorer communities and so on there weren't good statistics in Canadian cities to actually prove that while in the United States and Chicago Detroit and New York City it was obvious right from the beginning so when we talk about recognition of these kinds of inequalities it is important to look at how we normally uh, look at our societies uh, statistically. And uh, that is, of course, uh, it's a social scientific issue to some degree, but it's also one of how the state is organized and the administrations are organized, how public health sees uh, cities, how public health sees its clientele, how it normally, without a pandemic present, 
subdivides populations, makes biopolitical dis distinctions between people. So that is something, and I'm not valuing or assessing this here as good or bad. I'm just pointing out that this is an issue in itself. The second thing is how cities are organized. You know, that uh, many people understand that in the United States in particular, also to some degree in other parts of the world, um, you know, race uh, can be read off the grid and the geography of a city. Uh, segregation is a big issue in, in normal times. Uh, so, of course, segregation will also be an issue at times of a pandemic. So a more racially segregated city will have different outcomes in a pandemic uh, and in terms of uh, which parts of the population are affected than a non-segregated city. And those kinds of things need to be taken into account as we have a global conversation about that. And that doesn't even talk about uh, possibly a third aspect that I don't want to get into really, which is about the language we use to even understand those differences in both in everyday life, but also in scholarly discourse. Yeah, so I think um, as Roger and Harris have have mentioned, uh, you know, this isn't just a uh, a question of you know um, global north versus south. We also see inequalities within the global north as well. Um, uh, you have uh, you know, in terms of the question about how uh, what are the urban logics of economic survival um, contradicting the uh, state logics of lockdown. Um, you know, you have 50% of people in Canada and the U.S. that are unemployed now because of this. Um, and you do have uh, these debates about whether or not uh, economies should open up um, in the U.S. and Canada before they're uh, actually ready. So uh, where I am now in British Columbia, um, has uh, amongst the lowest growth in uh, cases around the across the country, but you still have uh, Ontario and Quebec, uh, which have amongst the most that are starting to open up already. And you see the same thing in the U.S., um, where these uh, political factors get come in. Uh, but in large parts of the global south, where you have more informal economies. Uh, life does tend to go on, but people um, will simply make less money. Um, so if you, you know, you're selling something on the street, for example, you might still continue to do that, but you just might not have as many customers. But that's that can be a big issue because uh, many people uh, in the informal economy or working, uh, living in informal settlements tend to live uh, hand to mouth with very li limited savings or capacity to save. Um so what, whichever the sector, if it's formal or informal, um, anything that interferes with, um, you know, uh, the demand uh, for work or uh, has might have impacts on salaries or employment will have very disastrous um, impacts because you don't have the same type of uh, state that we have in the U.S. or Canada that can um, provide um, subsidies or uh, payments to people that are out of work. Um, so this is something that I think needs to be addressed in the global south. So um, because the loss of income can have uh, more dis disastrous effects in some cases uh, with, uh, and other related issues like people being less able to purchase water and other uh, essentials. So there needs to be uh, some serious thought about that um, and specific guidance for people who can't stop working as well that provide essential services, for example, 
um, it should have uh, productive equipment uh, provided for, for those uh, those groups as well. Thinking a little bit more about um, the responses to the to the crisis um, <clears throat> and this idea that um, of Naomi Klein's, you know, her famous book, uh, The Shock Doctrine, that crises were uh, for uh, an opportunity uh, that could be instrumentalized uh, um, to take all proposals out of the draw to um, achieve or further um, uh, political agendas. Um, how much have we? Uh, uh, how much are we witnessing that uh, in the current context, uh, and how much are we witnessing that uh, to the extent of the detriment of democratic debate? I think this is an excellent question, um, which is probably going to um, be with us for quite some time now that the societies are opening. Uh, the you know the reordering and the reconfiguration of societies will be in that uh, in that context. Let's not forget that Naomi Klein wrote this book during, I think, an end of, at the end of the uh, Iraq War, and there's this famous um, scene, of course, when George Bush declares the war over. I think he's on a, an aircraft carrier um, somewhere and makes that um, declaration. Of course, all of us remember that. Then there were years of uh, shock and awe that came uh, after um, the war was over. So we have to be bracing ourselves for quite some time in which this reconfiguration of our global uh, world, urban world, uh, will have to take place in quite a, a bit of an atmosphere of uncertainty. And now also we need to admit that when this crisis started uh, at the beginning of 2020, the world wasn't really in the hand of the good guys, right? Uh, so when we talk about applying the shock doctrine, uh, then it is being applied or has been applied to countries and cities that have been suffering from austerity and ne neoliberalization for a while. In political terms, it's pretty obvious and, and every, on everybody's mind that the United States has had a president from hell uh, and the United Kingdom has had a government of Brexiteers. The German conservatives are, are firmly in place, uh, maybe not as firmly as their counterparts in the UK and the US, but uh, the, the entire seeking of uh, a successor of uh, Merkel, who had once again uh, you know, built a big, big profile for herself nationally and internationally, but the successors are now trying to, um, to replace her, of course, are aligning their politics up vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the kinds of uh, um, possibilities that now exist in terms of applying some shock to to society. So this is an interesting thing, and that even doesn't even mention the uh, the usual suspects like Xi and Orban, Putin, Erdogan, Bolsonaro, those kinds of people who have been firmly in place in those kinds of societies with a more authoritarian or autocratic bent to them. So uh, there is no liberal democracy there to be for the shock doctrine to be applied to. Uh, what is an outcome uh, on the geopolitical level, which isn't really my uh, scale of uh, normal research, but it cannot be avoided to look at it, is of course we have this new constellation between China and the United States as the only remaining superpowers. And the WHO has become sort of like a football between them in which uh, the, both these superpowers are uh, um, positioning themselves vis-a-vis -vis, uh, 
the, the World Health Organization, the United Nations, or the world community uh, more generally. And uh, the shock doctrine uh, uh, idea fits very well here because we will have to see what kind of shocks uh, those superpowers have in store for us. Where I expect uh, beyond sort of the geopolitical, um, more in the terms of the global health governance, where I expect um, a huge impact of this current um, crisis is in the reordering of the global politics of public health, uh, one health, uh, these kinds of issues will probably have to be debated again, and most specifically, the politics of vaccines. And, uh, you know, it is clear that right from the get-go as this um, pandemic started, there was a, uh, the question, when will the vaccine be ready? And there are now literally dozens, maybe hundreds of labs around the world working towards a manageable uh, strategy for vaccine application. This is, of course, at a much larger scale than what we already saw over the last uh, three to five years in West Africa and in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, where also global pharmaceutical uh, corporations have been in a race to create a vaccine, uh, a working vaccine for the Ebola virus disease. Uh, that has now become a global search for a vaccine for um, COVID-19. And that is really sort of uh, one place where I think that the, the kind of logic that Naomi Klein has been thinking about needs to be, needs to be thought about. Uh, perhaps I could add uh, a couple of things. One is the techno politics, uh, is what I would call the Elon Musk uh, blueprints that are now being talked about. So when you talk about taking stuff out of drawers and applying them to democratic societies, Elon Musk is trying to outdo us all and taking a blueprint a day out of his um, drawers that he has somewhere in the California desert or in the Nevada desert and is trying to remake uh, the discourse, global discourse. Um, and he's just one of those tech capitalists. And I'm not a conspiracy theorist at all, but it's really important to keep our eyes on what kind of shocks can be expected from those particular drawers in the, that are in the desks, if the non-existing desk of the tech industry. Uh, in, on that level, also, uh, we need to think about how all of this uh, relates to the climate emergency. That's probably a debate for another time, but we must not forget that this hit us at a time when uh, many, many people around the world were beginning to see the light in terms of creating a global discourse on the climate emergency. Um, so that wouldn't have to be taken up again at that high level. And lastly, perhaps, uh, when we talk specifically about urban issues, um, urban planning, uh, urban politics, uh, here we have uh, questions largely right reorganizing public space, densities, use of streets, availability of cycling infrastructure, and so on. And of course, there are little, tiny little shock doctrines now going on in those uh, at that, that scale, at the urban scale, at which a lot of people now, uh, you know, make... Uh, a run for an end run for the kinds of things that they always thought was a good idea. Some of those, uh, you know, local urban scale uh, shocks uh, are good things. Uh, you know, it's great that some cities are now actually closing down streets for automobile traffic. Those kinds of things are very important. But there are also 
probably more evil kind of uh, plans been brought out. And that has to be seen in a context of what my uh, UBC colleague, uh, Alex Flynn, has been talking about, uh, which is the question of emergency powers for cities. So uh, many cities, like the city of Toronto, uh, has given emergency powers to the mayor. Uh, he can currently decide on a lot of things that he normally doesn't have the power to. So he can apply little shocks um, to the democratic system as long as he has these emergency powers. And we need to watch very um, closely uh, to what degree cities will ease out of this state of emergency and uh, bring the democratic deliberation back into play. Thank you. So let's uh, take another look uh, at the role of cities and regions and how um, their position in response to the pandemic has changed or not. Uh, since the last time we spoke. I remember that um, you observed uh, the, dom the, the dominant role uh, for the nation state in this uh, public health response. Um, how has that changed over the past couple of weeks? And also, have we seen forms of collaboration among cities Uh, in view of uh, a concerted or coordinated response? I, I think there's three little things that could, short um, contributions I could make to this. Uh, one is that we are now having a debate whether, uh, as during SARS, we talked about um, following, uh, uh, you know, the lead of uh, David Fiddler, um, who came... Uh, to the conclusion that SARS was a post-Westphalian uh, pathogen, and uh, that which meant that it was something that uh, opened up global health governance to forms of subnational and supranational um, uh, governance that hadn't been around really since the peace of Westphalia and created the nation system. So we thought about SARS in that context of creating perhaps uh, new pathways for these kinds of city-to-city -city politics. Um, the books like uh, Barbarous, uh, If Mayors Ruled the World, you know, was also in that same vein. Um, the, the same David Fiddler who came up with this has recently written a piece in which he says that COVID-19 is actually a Westphalian um, pathogen and, you know, the Global governance has come gone back to the scale of the nation state as an important one. Now that is one way to look at it, and I think to some degree that is true. Others have uh, pointed out, and much has to do with what Creighton already talked about in terms of uh, Hong Kong and Singapore and Toronto, the experience of SARS, uh, the city states in particular, Hong Kong, Singapore, but also others, uh, but also those large global cities that are sort of oddities in their own countries. New York is an oddity in the United States. Uh, that those large cities have, of course, more weight to throw around uh, in um, in the global governance uh, game. Now, uh, that has already led to initiatives like the C40 network of cities, which has particularly been uh, active in, uh, again, climate emergency issues, has also now created a global mayor's COVID-19 recovery task force which is uh, coordinated by former Toronto Mayor David Miller. Uh, that is kind of an example of how cities organize in a network fashion 
um, by themselves. What I want to point out, though, is that as these so-called global cities, these large cities that we all know the names of, um, uh, are organizing themselves and with each other, um, a lot of the problems uh, that we have seen under COVID-19 have actually occurred. A lot of you know the the, the consequences of the of the of the outbreak have occurred in the lesser known places, in the smaller towns, in the peripheries of cities, in the peripheries of our urban world in which we live, and it's much less obvious uh, in, on, at, in, in that context how uh, cities have played a role or communities uh, or municipalities or regional outfits have played a role in organizing themselves uh, in the larger scalar or federal architecture in which they normally um, um, uh, operate. So that's something that we actually have now proposed just in a, you know, in a research proposal that some of us here in this podcast are part of, uh, to think about that in a more global sense. We're proposing a study of 15 cities around the world that are quite different in you know, all continents in the world uh, to actually look at how that has happened on the ground. I think it's too early to come to a conclusion here, but uh, it is really important to keep our eyes on the forgotten uh, um, forms of urbanity here uh, and how they have been part of this um, uh, collaborative effort amongst cities. Drawing from our current experiences from such places as Singapore, Hong Kong, Monrovia, Toronto, what kind of lasting change from the corona pandemic should we expect in our urban health responses um, in view of reoccurring epidemics, influenza or new ones? Yeah, uh, one of the things I think that will come up, and it, it's almost like a situation that occurred after uh, 9-11, and this is uh, the development of the securitization of society. You know, after 9-11, um, you know, in line with Naomi Klein's sort of arguments, you had the privatized security industry arising. And, and dominating many spheres of, of social life. So, you know, you can talk about environmental security and energy security and uh, national security and all these different types of securities seem to dominate uh, the discourse. By the same token, you can also talk about public health security. You know, and this is why uh, certain political scientists uh, uh, became interested in, in this topic of, of public health because it becomes redefined as a, as a security issue. And it becomes a sort of political opportunity for the Defense Department to be involved and the, the security industries complex to be involved. And I think after the, the pandemic, uh, the, the, the COVID-19 pandemic, I think you will see uh, much more of this sort of public health security discourses coming up. And this has implications more generally um, because a certain aspect of the security emphasis is things like risk profiling or racial profiling and issues like that. And uh, just as we've now become accustomed to greater searches or scrutiny uh, at crossing the borders uh, when we get onto the airplane, um, I think we'll, we'll also be subject to more sort of public health security measures and more scrutiny. You know, what forms that will take uh, is, is open to question, but that is a, a possibility. 
this, it's quite clear that we're not just going to, you know, the pandemic isn't going to um, fade away and we'll just go back to the way we were before. I think there will be quite significant changes in society um, that really affect um, the way that, uh, that we travel and the way that we work um, and uh, the way that the economy functions. So, um, you know, this is something that Roger and Harris had mentioned before from their SARS research that there were uh, some elements that came into play um, during SARS that kind of stuck around afterwards, particularly at the urban governance level um, and in terms of uh, health policy as well. Uh, and of course, we saw that after uh, 9-11 with the changes in the aviation industry. But um, I think we're going to have some uh, some more serious uh, changes. And one, one thing that I was thinking about was um, that, you know, cities used to have uh, um, quarantine uh, spaces for people that uh, you know were coming into the country that they would spend two weeks in isolation somewhere uh, and quarantine uh, before they could uh, go go on um, with and that's something that you know might become uh, more regimented because in the past of course uh, infectious disease was a part of everyday life um, it uh, emerged uh, all the time. And so it seems to be that we're kind of going back to this uh, where infectious disease is quite um, bound up with our everyday lives and uh, that these types of epidemics and pandemics will be uh, occurring more frequently um, as uh, our lives become more urbanized and globalized. Um, so I think we will have some quite profound uh, changes in that respect. I mean, I just wanted to add something um, in relation to the discussion around the shock doctrine more at a at a global level. It's been interesting to see how um, China has been using the opportunity uh, to some extent to advance uh, their interests in uh, Hong Kong and in um, the, the South China Sea. So there had been uh, last month um, sort of arrest of about 14 uh, politicians and activists uh, in Hong Kong. Um, and, you know, normally that would trigger uh, huge waves of prote protests in Hong Kong, but of course uh, that wasn't able to happen at the time uh, due to the pandemic. Um, and I think uh, a lot of these uh, geopolitical interests have been advanced um, in the South China Sea and in, you know, flying military planes closer to Taiwan um, and really sort of taking advantage of uh, the sort of distraction that the coronavirus has um, has um, achieved. And, uh, you know, I've been interested in doing research on this Belt and Road uh, infrastructure that China is developing in Southeast Asia and um, Central Asia and parts of Africa. And uh, one question I had was, uh, oh, well, is that is that going to to stop now or is that going to continue happening and it's like well yes actually i think even even more so um you know the the pandemic isn't going to be uh, a reason for uh countries to um put uh, to shelve their geopolitical interests but um it can be quite the opposite in some cases as well in the countries in the global north we might expect uh, uh, the pandemic to be over within a year or around a year um, um, how long do, might we expect that uh, 
how long might uh, these these cycles take in, in the global south? Yeah, um, that's actually a, a very difficult uh, question to answer because, to some sense, it, it depends on the the biological characteristics of, of of the virus. But even if the the vaccine is is developed, um, and it's a point that Roger uh, alluded to previously. Uh, the question becomes one of vaccine distribution and the politics of vaccine distribution. And it's, you know, very likely, uh, judging by the way the power inequality dynamics are today, that the global north will be receiving the vaccine first and that the, the, the global south will be receiving it second. Right. So that means that the that the virus is uh, embedded for a much longer period of time in, in the global south, at least over the, the lag time. So, you know, depending on the biological characteristics of the virus, you know, will the virus become endemic to that region, right? Um, you know, will herd immunity be developed and then the virus just becomes an endemic sort of a phenomena? Again, it, it depends, again, on the biological uh, constitution of, of the virus. Well, that's uh, one of the things uh, that I think we have to look out for. Um, and, you know, one of the, the lessons learned from infectious disease outbreaks in the past is viruses hide in, in the poor. Uh, uh, Paul Farmer has written, you know, extensively about this in terms of structural violence. And you still, of course, see many examples of that, tuberculosis being the most prominent uh, example, you know. And one of the other things that you have to bear in mind is that, you know, the Western positivist scientific informed approach to, you know, everything is to look at uh, sort of the magic bullet. And in this case, or a technological fix, a technological solution. In this case, it's the vaccine. But again, if you look at, for example, the tuberculosis, the decline in the mortality rate in tuberculosis was, was occurring for decades before uh, the antibiotic or vaccine was discovered. And why there was a decline in the mortality rate of tuberculosis was because of uh, changing environmental and social conditioning uh, conditions, having less crowded housing, having better nutrition, having better uh, sanitary uh, developments in, in the society, and so on and, and so forth, right? So <clears throat> it wasn't just the, the magic bullet of the vaccine or antibiotic that led to the, uh, keeping the disease under control, but our environmental changes. And I think in the developing world, in the global south, there's always been this emphasis on sort of changing society and changing environment and not having to rely on a technological fix. And that's not, of course, to sort of downplay the importance of needing a, a vaccine. A, a, of course, it's important. But I think in the neglected global south, they've had to almost be forced to find other ways of dealing with infectious diseases. And they have had a history of dealing with many types of infectious diseases uh, over the past. And I think they'll continue to sort of use those sort of uh, ways of, of dealing with infectious diseases instead of having to rely just on a, a vaccine as we're so apt to do in the global north. I did see a report in the Guardian just last night that's uh, based on uh, WHO data that says about 250 million people in Africa uh, are expected to become infected with the coronavirus and that only about 22% um, of these infections will incur 
occur in the next year, um, and perhaps uh, up to 190,000 people dying in the next two months, and uh, that this will, of course, overwhelm the uh, medical capacity in much of Africa. So, um, so we are likely to see coronavirus lasting up to perhaps four years uh, in Africa, as um, Harris was saying. You can have uh, sort of the the smoldering of the virus in certain hot spots, and you'll just have uh, reoccurrences over time. So, um, you know, there could be second, third, fourth, uh, fifth waves, um, and uh, another factor that you might see, particularly in informal settlements is um, that uh, you can have a uh, much sort of um, quicker peak uh, with uh, the number of infections. So um, so you'll have more people becoming infected at the same, uh, same time. So um, yeah, these are really important issues that I think need to be uh, addressed in, in uh, Africa and other parts of the global south before um, you know the health uh, systems really get um, overburdened. One of the things that uh, I think everyone understands now and may not have necessarily been the case in the past is that uh, a disease outbreak or pandemic is not simply a technical phenomena uh, studied by scientists. You know, you have to look at the, the other aspects involved. I mean, even the term social distancing was used so much before, but it highlights that the need to look at the, the social and the urban aspects of this very complex and emergent phenomena. And um, one of the things that we may have to deal with is sort of the issue of information overload as, you know, all the sort of disciplines sort of bring in their own insights into understanding and analyzing uh, this phenomena. And it becomes a lot of work to sift through all this information, but at least we have that information. Following up on that, against that, that backdrop, what kind of openings um, can we see then for progressive or even uh, more transformative kinds of urban politics, in, you know, given this context? I think we need to differentiate um, different kinds of politics. There's a politics of urban form, there's a politics on urban socioeconomic change, which addresses all these inequalities that we've been talking about. And there is a politics of urban governance and democracy. And I think in all of those areas, uh, there are uh, important new initiatives where people, despite the fact that we actually have no meaningful public space in which to go out into and to be in the streets and to make demands and those kinds of things that progressive urban movements have often been known for, uh, there is an extremely high level of global conversation about those three discourses. I just want to mention one, which I think is extremely important and maybe the master discourse in all of those, which is the housing movement, uh, movement about rent strikes and rent relief. Uh, those kinds of things have been shown as being really hopeful. Uh, now we need, need to make sure, this is the most important thing, we need to make sure that we're not being split into an urban movement and into an environmental movement that we now bring together the loose ends of the climate emergency politics and the progressive um, urban politics uh, in our cities worldwide. Thank you very much, uh, Creighton, Harris and Roger for this engaging conversation uh, once again. 
Thanks to you for listening. For more information, visit our website urbanpolitical.podigy.io. Please subscribe and follow us on Twitter.